Hey, listener, Zach Harper here. Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years. Here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To five three three four two New York, call the twenty four seven Hope Line at one eight seven seven eight Hope and Y or text Hope and Y four six seven three six nine. Special episode of the Bomb Podcast. My name is Neon Hassan. Be joined as always by Black Trey, John Gervais, Rob Lopez, producing. Hey, yo, Trey. Yo. What are you doing on March 28th? Uh, I am going to be in Brooklyn. Oh, watch out now. What at the at the the the, the Bell, Bell House. House in Brooklyn? That's where you're going to be at the live show. Man, and I I talked to some guests before I jumped offline. You know, I ain't on social media, but I talked to some guests, and they confirmed that they're going to be there. And I'm excited because it's some people I've never met before. They've been my internet friends for like pretty long time. So I'm excited about this. And then also, you know, I haven't seen you guys in a while. So I'm really happy about that. We haven't seen a lot of of our fans in a while. So if if you're going to be in the New York City area, March 28th, you still got a lot of time to book your travel right now. The Bell House Theater in Brooklyn, New York, March 28th. Count the dings. Uh, dot com for ticket information. All the way down on you, the left. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me do that. <laughs> oh, you know what? Hey, she's telling you all the way down on the left. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, countedings.com, you can find your ticket information. Go ahead, make your way out. You know you don't, you know you want to, you know this is going to be the thing that you're going to be kicking yourself if you don't go to. Countedings.com. I'm going to be there. Trey's going to be there. Waz, all your favorites, plus special guests. We got confirmed special guests. And by the way, we're going heavy hitters. Heavy hitters. Heavier than the TSA person yelling at me right now. Uh, But first, uh, if you watched one of the hottest titles on Netflix right now, uh, Who Killed Malcolm X? It's a a mini-series, a documentary, docu-series diving into the 
the assassination of Malcolm X and really a lot of the backstory there and some of the unanswered questions. And we've got a special treat today, everybody. We've, we've got the producer and director of the project, Phil Bertelson. Phil, how's it going, man? Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. I should just correct up front. I'm one of producers and one of the directors. It took an army of at least four people, you know, to make this. So I share share the credit with those that made this with me. Well, let's start there. How did this project first come across you? You know, I produce work with a company called Arc Media, and one of their founders or principal founders is a woman named Rachel Dretson. And one of the things we do is sit around often and, you know, chop it up about what we want to do next. And, you know, the Manning Marable biography uh, on Malcolm was um, something of interest to us because it it mentioned the fact that there could be uh, an assassin out there that was responsible for Malcolm's death. Um Hiding in plain sight, someone who'd gone unpunished, unquestioned um, about this crime. And so we became curious um, and, and put our heads together and, and got to work on this. We, uh, we also I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I would just add that the okay. source of, of that, the source of that uh, information in the Marable biography is a man by the name of Abdur Rahman Mohammed, who we um, joined forces with. Um, and he was our principal investigator um, throughout the series, so you get to know him as well. He's and he's a very fascinating character because, you know, when you first start watching episode one, and in the beginning, you got it's got clips of him talking, and you think to yourself, this guy's a historian, or is he a forensic expert, or what is he? Right. You realize he's literally just a concerned citizen that did the legwork to find a lot of this information, a lot of information that I, I must admit, I was a little shocked how readily available this information was for anyone who just wanted to do the legwork as opposed to kind of a clandestine, you know, a, uh, a, a secret test that had the notes in there and the secrets in there. All this stuff was kind of out there. Um, why do you think it took so long for a lot of this stuff to to come to light? and? Uh, to, to what amounts to basically a layperson, a, a, a common citizen who, who right. did the work. Right. He, he, he says himself, I, you know, I don't have a Ph.D. I'm just a regular brother who, you know, who wants to bring justice for Malcolm. And, you know, it bothered him deeply that this was a case that had been unsettled, that there was these lingering questions around, you know, who killed Malcolm and why. And, um, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, to answer your question as to why was this information out there for so long and and not taken advantage of it, I don't think, you know, people really wanted to find the answers. I mean, certainly um, certain authorities were happy to keep this kind of veil of mystery around Malcolm's death and and, you know, so those involved, it was convenient, I guess, for them to continue uh, with this, these half-truths and lies about who and what killed Malcolm. And this one brother just was like, look, enough of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the answers, you know, if it takes me half my life. And 
It essentially did. He looked good for for his age too. I thought he was younger than what he what he said he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess the curiosity will keep you youthful. I don't know, but uh, you know, he he really sacrificed a lot, you know, in in his his journey, and uh, you know, we all owe him a debt of gratitude, and we were happy to be able to put, you know, what he found into a uh, place along with, you know, pre-existing history and some new information that we, we discovered along the way and put the pieces together as best we could. So, uh, like, when you, uh, you know, not to jump super-duper far ahead, but, like, what, what was it like when you guys, because, you know, I mean, like Amin said, I, I, I was shocked at how, how available everything was and on a personal level, I was shocked at how little I knew. What was mm-hmm. it like as you guys started really narrowing it down and you guys really discovered, you know, the actual person that did it as you guys were getting closer and closer? Like, what was that actually like? What was that feeling like? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we used to do these interviews before it streamed and kind of concern ourselves with spoiler alerts. But now that it's in the world, we... <laughs> We feel a little more free to talk about it. I mean, we were on the hunt of this man that uh, Abdur Rahman had identified uh, through his research as a Muslim in the community. Much of it's just oral history that was being told to him. And, and you know, so he was able to identify this man by name. Um, but what hadn't been done was a real deep dive into who this man was uh, you know, what was his role, um, and, and what was his history? Um, and, 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 and I think that's, what's really new here. And we had to do that work first, know what we were dealing with, you know, there's one thing to know his name and where he lived. There's another thing to really know where he came from and what he was about. And, and once we figured that out and we started to talk to people in his community, this is Newark, New Jersey, um, we found that there was a, element of fear around him. Um, and people were, you know, scared to talk about him or even to give him, uh, this, this, this label, if you will, about uh, as being an assassin. So, you know, and it was, it was righteous fear. You know, this guy had a long jacket of, of, uh, crime with a, a weapon, um, and assault and all kinds of things that, you know, would be enough to, make you dummy up when someone asked you about him. So we ran into that. And then, so, you know, along the way in our attempt to kind of uncover who he was and and ultimately confront him, um, he left his earthly existence. And, um, it was at that point that we were able to actually get some more answers and get some more kind of affirmation about who killed Malcolm X. Um, Isn't there, wasn't there no element that 50 years after, more than 50 years after the, the, you know, the assassination, that people were still Mm -hmm. smoking hush tones? That was the other thing that came across, the idea that even now in modern day Newark, the community there still was kind of an uneasy relationship with Malcolm X almost more than 50 years after he was assassinated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's hard to describe. I mean, the fact is the man was still alive. Right. And he was a known killer. So you, you don't want to just come all out of your head and start no talking man, about, though, right? you know. Yeah. Well, the fact that he was in that campaign threw me all the way off. Right. Like, I'm like, <laughs> yo, you are walking around 
right. like untouchable at this point. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. Yeah, the campaign he's referring to is is Mayor Cory Booker, or then Mayor Cory Booker's reelection campaign featured this man in an ad that, ironically enough, was all about law enforcement and what you know the mayor had done for law enforcement and reducing crime in the city of Newark. And there's this dude, you know, shaking hands with a and you know Newark police officer in the ad, you know, and and so to your point, like. You know, that, you know, he his whole reimagination or regeneration had been so complete that he was, you know, able to do that without any repercussions. Um, there are those that think it was just an ironic kind of gesture that those who knew knew um, the mayor doesn't claim to have known this man's notorious past. Um, and he says as much in the series. But. You know, he seemed to be the only one in Newark who didn't know, uh, from what we could tell. Um, yeah, it was like it was kind of like the worst kept secret type thing, you know? Right. Like, uh, we don't want to touch it. Now, I was in a similar situation like that, talking about Tupac Shakur and mm. uh, from Compton, and mm. in the situation of you know the guy allegedly who murdered Tupac Shakur um, was from like over there by my neighborhood. And it was like, oh, we all knew this from a long time. But, you know, again, it's one of those territories that you're just really just like, all right, let him be. But then again, it wasn't a let him be because he was murdered two years after. You know what I mean? So, mm. again, I think that's why everyone was even more loosely to talk about it now and very openly. Um, so I related to that even more of how the residents, you know, the nation of Islam in Newark was where they're just kind of like, man, just let, let it go at this point. You know what I mean? Right. Like leave right. it alone because it, it happened, but nobody really touched on it. The only difference is because, you know, the guy that supposedly killed Tupac was not on this earth a little bit longer to, you know, kind of roam um, right. versus his situation where he was able to, you know, I guess, you know, for, ask for forgiveness and then go on and create a whole nother life. And, you know, you know, pretty much wash his hands with his past and, and, and be now this now community activist and, and, and herald. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the most surprising thing really is that man did have a chance to, to redeem himself and he committed himself to Islam. He even made the Hajj, you know, and, and, in doing that, you know, Many felt he absolved himself of his sins, um, you know, and so, you know, subsequently he becomes this community leader um, and this, you know, devout Muslim and active in the community, you know, organizing on behalf of its youth, um, has a boxing gym with his wife and, you know, is really doing everything he can to, to you know, make good on his transgresses and, and the community offers him some forgiveness for that. And, and, and truthfully, there's a long history of that kind of forgiveness, um, to some extent within the black community. But, you know, when it comes to some, a figure like Malcolm X, people have to ask themselves, you know, is that really a forgivable crime? Uh, um, the community of North, you know, it's complicated. Uh, I, I do think too, there was a certain, um, appreciation for the fact that this man did not act alone, that there were, you know, larger forces at work, um, governmental forces, law enforcement, 
um, at work in all of this, and you know that he himself was was merely a puppet uh, in, in in a puppet master's game. Um, and so I think all of that kind of factors into people's you know consideration of of of, of what he did and whether or not to absolve him. Uh, I got to let everybody know that if you're listening to this podcast right now, I have one request for you. I want you to take a second and look down. When's the last time you shaved your junk? It's been a while. Don't lie. Let's take a second to thank our sponsor, Manscaped, for holding you accountable to get rid of the funk and shave your junk. I know a couple of you guys got some dope gear from Manscaped, so shouts to Manscaped for sending that over. Uh, Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 Essentials Kit. The perfect tools for your family jewels. The Perfect Package 3.0 Kit comes with the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 Waterproof Cordless Body Trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping action Accidents. Millions of balls are about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. And of course, let's not forget about the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits, right? So why are you not putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? When you purchase the new Perfect Package 3.0 kit at Manscaped.com, you get the biggest bang for your buck. Subscribers get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. For a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. This is the perfect package for your perfect package. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code BOM at Manscaped.com. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code BOM, B-O-M, at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use code BOM, BOM. Your partner, your body, and your balls. Well, thank you. How, how hard was it to get many of those uh, old Nation of Islam voices that you guys had in the documentary to open up and speak freely the way they did? You know, it, you guys are journalists, you know, you, you know the journey of, of getting people's confidence. Um, it's, it's never a straight line. Um, it's often about timing and certainly always about approach and trust and, and how you can build trust. Um, and in our case, you know, we, we started slowly. Um, you know, that community was one of the last on the long list of, of people to, to speak to. And, and we, we, we deliberately did that. So we had all the information that we felt we could find, um, all the evidence that we thought was out there, um, before, you know, just stepping out and making accusations. So, you know, it was a slow grind and, and it was a matter of, you know, respecting the community, respecting where they came from and, and, and how they, you know, lived their lives, um, that enabled us to kind of, to get the trust of some, which leads to the trust of others. And, you know, you just kind of build on that. Um, it's, 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 it was not a, a simple recipe, but uh, one that time, I think, worked in our favor for. It took us nearly three years to, to complete the whole thing. Oh, man. So I got a question, uh, mean, before you, you know, you jump in uh, for the panel. What would you think, you know, if this didn't happen, what was next for Malcolm X? 
Like what would have what would he what direction would he went in? I'll give you I'll give you my answer really quick because it's pretty morbid and dark. I don't see a world where he could have. There, there was no way they were going to let him live much longer than he did. Because it, when you talk about someone who's that that much of a lightning rod and uh, influential, and you know, I, I think of the line from the the Spike Lee movie where you know there's a, a riot forming outside, and all he does is lift his hand up, and then he points away, and everyone walks away, and he says. No man should have that kind of power. Mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of guy like that, and people who are powerful like that, unregulated, unchecked um, by you know uh, that. One of the best things I thought in the documentary was the dis- not only the description. You guys had the tape, the actual mm-hmm. tape of when the the guys came in and tried to the feds came in and tried to get them to name names and mm-hmm. become a CI, and mm-hmm. he had a, he was taping it, which. In today's, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a younger listener, you think to yourself, what's the big deal? You put a recorder, let's go. Right. Back in like 1963, 64, 65, like, right. that's quite the technological feat. To be able that's to right. That as, as, a, as a personal, as, as a, a regular citizen. So, yeah, I, I just, to answer your question, Trey, I just don't see any scenario where he would have lived much longer than he did. Yeah, no, I think that's valid. And the scene you're talking about is when the FBI comes to his house to try to flip him, you know, because they know there's this tension between him and the nation and, and, and Elijah Muhammad has, you know, cast him out basically. So they're thinking Malcolm's vulnerable, like he's prey. We're going to go in and we're going to try to get him to sing, you know, and, uh, offer him some money even. And Malcolm's insulted by the whole thing. He's like, you know, he even says you insult your intelligence by thinking that I'm going <laughs> to actually, you know, cater to what you are interested in me doing. Like, he's just, like, not having it. He claps back loud. But I think you're right. I don't think, you know, the, the forces arrayed against Malcolm at that point in his life were so tremendous that it, it would have been hard to see him have a way out. But he certainly was on a you know, a path that would have been even more powerful and galvanizing. He was starting to align himself with the so-called traditional civil rights movement more and more. And, and Dr. King himself was moving in the direction of Malcolm. So at some point, you figure those two men would have met in the middle. And that would have just been, you know, crazy. Um, and they knew that. They, being the FBI, issued a memo about having a fear of a black messiah. And, and that was the last thing. They wanted to see, and both men were dead before 40. Um, so they had a whole life time ahead of them. Where did you guys find those tapes, by the way? You know, that, like everything else, is strangely out there and available. Um, and those tapes have been on YouTube, you know, for, for, for years. Um, one journalist who probably did as much as any in the kind of broadcast space um, around this issue was a man named Gil Noble, um, had a show called Like It Is on ABC TV local in New York. And he he never was satisfied with the answers he was getting around this and, you know, committed himself to continually report on it. And uh, he was where we first heard those tapes uh, on his show. Um, but they weren't his. They, they were literally the property of Malcolm, who 
had put a recorder under his couch, knowing that they were going to come calling, you know. And uh, like you say, it was not as simple as a voice memo on your phone. You know, he had to hook up a reel-to-reel and a microphone and, and you know, be ready for him. And, and he was. And we found the agent that came knocking, who was retired, yeah. who, you know, yeah. didn't want to be on camera, but was willing to admit, yeah, I understand we were recorded that day. Um, I, we asked him if he wanted to hear it. He's like, no, you know, he was, it was his only humble moment. You know, he was celebrating everything else about that situation. But yeah. Wow. Well, let me see how I can phrase this. Uh, because one of, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the involvement of uh, well, people that were alive and current at that moment who were law enforcement. Mm-hmm. That that uh, again, it, it's one of those things where I guess part of me is like, well, it was fifty years ago. What does it matter anymore? And part of me is like, wow, these people are speaking very openly about some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, it it is time. You know, the idea that you know a lot of healing had been done, and but the truth is, I think people were just getting something off their conscience, right, while they could. You know, we speak to a lead detective who was a member of the NYPD's, you know, undercover. A Bureau of Special Services, um, who is very candid about the fact that he thinks the, you know, the prosecution and the investigation were botched, you know, and he was a part of it, you know. Um, the FBI uh, agent, who's now retired, as I said, he's speaking openly to a, to an extent without a camera, but um, allowed us to audio tape him. He, um, you know, he doesn't feel he did anything wrong. I mean, regardless of the fact that. You know, he reveals to us there were nine informants in that room, nine FBI informants in the Audubon that day, all of whom gave testimony to the FBI, none of which that we can tell was ever shared with the NYPD as they were investigating this crime. So then you have that kind of lack of cooperation. You know, was it complicity? Was it, you know, what's the, why, how is it that you are a law enforcement agency with information leading to the arrest of the rightful criminals and you don't share that with local law enforcement? So, I mean, it is a little bit baffling. And I think some of those, you know, you know, inconsistencies uh, have, you know, caused the Manhattan DA's office to decide they want to take another look at this or at least evaluate whether or not. It's worth taking another look. So another question I had was, over the years now, it's pretty obvious Dan Hoover was a pretty awful human being. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, as, as objectively as I can say that. He, yeah. he, he, yeah. This is a guy who... Despicable. Who, despicable and yeah. overstepped the, the lines and the boundaries of, of you know, judicious law enforcement and all that. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, you know, the FBI building is named the Hoover building. There's mm-hmm. still a lot of like, well, it w- there's a, a big part of American history that I don't think really reflects that. Do you, mm-hmm. do you feel like that's going to change? Is any, any of this stuff, any of these revelations from over the last 50 years of just w- not only what a corrupt man he was, but also the, the tactics that the FBI used to investigate private citizens? Mm-hmm. When 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 does he get his reckoning? I guess where 
you know, well, at least let's get his name off of some of these buildings. Right, 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 right. He's like the statue you, you need to yeah. tear down in the town square, for sure. Right, right. I mean, I'll say this about the FBI. You know, we approached them, you know, let them know what we were doing in hopes that we would get an audience with them and, and allow, you know, them an opportunity to answer the questions that we had. And and ultimately, we got that audience. You know, it was under the watchful eye of an agent and a publicist, but we spoke to their historian, and he himself admits that, you know, some of the tactics that they used then would never cut muster now, I think is the quote, you know, that what they did to Malcolm, they could not get away with today. Um, the idea that they sowed the seeds of distrust and dissension, you know, stoked the flames of of conflict between Malcolm and the nation is, you know, nothing short of, of I think, a complicit act in, 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 you know, leading to his his death. But, you know, they're they're openly admitting that that was not the right path. Um, that was a civil rights violation. Um, what consequences there for that? I don't know. You know, yeah, I don't know. Um, but they're they seem to be on something of a kind of mea culpa campaign about that um, period in their law enforcement history. I don't, just don't know where what the outcome is going to be. If, you know, justice can be bought to the wrongfully convicted men in this situation, that would be a first step. You know, so hopefully they'll turn over their files and open up, unredact some documents and, and we can get some answers. Absolutely. So, Phil, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Uh, as a filmmaker? As a filmmaker. Uh, I know uh, you did a movie, uh, Outside Looking In. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that was my first documentary, actually. And it was, uh, it was basically, you know, where most storytellers begin, which is with their own experience. And in my case, you know, I was actually born in Newark, which made this story even more painful. But I was born into foster care and spent the first four years of my life in foster care in Newark until I was adopted um, by a Norwegian family. So, you know, a black man came from pretty much. That's it. Okay. That's what, yep. Yeah. Son of Bertle. But, uh, that's, you know, I think a large part of why I've been committed to telling stories about, you know, African-American history and culture is because it was not what I was raised with. So it was my own kind of self-education, you know what I mean? To teach and learn what I wasn't taught. And, uh, and I get an opportunity to do it on the, you know, a global stage. Um, and, and I feel fortunate for that. So, well, Phil, we're very fortunate to have you on the podcast today. Very thankful to have you on. Uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find more of your work? Well, you know, you can find Who Killed Malcolm X, you know, produced and directed by me and my partner, Rachel Dretson, my producing partner and producers, Naila Sims and Shayla Harris on Netflix, streaming globally. Um, Prior to that, Rachel and I made a film called Hope and Fury about the civil rights movement and MLK's use of the media to get his message across. That was um, made for NBC. And you may be able to still find that in some of the NBC, um, you know, ancillary streaming somewhere. 
it's hard to tell. It, li- it lives somewhere. It's got to live somewhere. Yeah, yeah. you know yeah. what I mean. You got to if you got Comcast, you got NBC. Dial in Hope and Fury, and you'll get that piece as well. So thank you guys for uh, you know hey. taking a closer look and and giving us an opportunity to to sh- talk about the work. Thank you, thank you for making this incredible piece of documentary uh, and, and educating all of us again. Like, like I echo what John, uh, what Jerv said earlier. At, at some point, you're watching this and you kind of feel bad. Like, how did I not already know this? Because yeah. I, I feel like I'm well read and I'm up on it and I, and I and I'm, and I'm familiar with the story. And yet, there's all this information. Like I said, simultaneously, how did I not know any of this? And more importantly, how did I not know any of it when so much of it was readily available? Yep. Yep. Well, we, we, we feel fortunate to have been able to pull it all together and, 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 and deliver it in a way that, that people are, are able to receive it, you know, and understand it. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Phil Bertelson, for joining us. Breaking Not it down all. for us. Thanks, John Gervais, Black Trey, and, of course, Rob Lopez on the ones and twos. We will have an overflow episode where we're reviewing the latest episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm and also the death of Pop Smoke. So make sure you look out for that if you're a Patreon member.